Let's go ahead and get started. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning to study in the word of God, and we are about to embark upon a review of what we have studied in 1 Timothy. We have completed uh, the week before our vacation. We completed our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Timothy. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to go back and look at what we have as a translation and also look at the principles that we covered in that study in order to bring it all together. Because as we go through, every time we go through one of these verse-by-verse studies, we look at the minutiae. We get down to the details of it, and we get ourselves in the midst of the trees And we can forget about the big picture, the forest. And so by going back and doing a review, it helps us to pull it all together so we can have an understanding of what was being communicated in that particular book. Uh, So we are going to embark upon that here in just a moment. Before we do, we need to take a moment for silent prayer because as believer priests, we need to make sure that our hearts are prepared for the study of the Word of God. This entails confession of sin, if necessary, but also humility before The word of God and its truth before the Holy Spirit who ministers to us, shall we pray. Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with another opportunity to gather here at the church, something that was not guaranteed. We didn't even know if we were going to get today, but you gave us today and you gave us this opportunity to gather here at the church. You gave us the opportunity to fellowship. You gave us the opportunity to look at Romans chapter 11 last hour, the opportunity to gather and pray together in the corporate prayer meeting. You've blessed us with all of these things. And now we have an opportunity to look at the material that we have learned from the study we've done of first Timothy and to bring it all together in our thinking. And we pray that you will help us to set aside distractions, focus our attention on what it is that you're teaching us, that through this we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Uh, as I mentioned, we are going to begin our review of First Timothy. And after we finish that uh, review of First Timothy, we are going to have some topical studies that I'm going to present. We had that topical study last Sunday on worry, and we're going to have additional topical studies uh, that are going to be after the review of First Timothy before we begin our study of Second Timothy. And the reason for that is there's various things that have come up that we need to talk about and that are important. The Holy Spirit has put these things on my heart to present them. So one of them is going to be on anger for sure. Uh, there's other topics that have come up that I'm, I'm looking into. So uh, prepare yourselves for that. After we're done with this review, we will uh, dive into some topical studies uh, prior to beginning our study of Second Timothy, because this has always been a First Timothy, Second Timothy study from the very beginning. All right, this is, this is just reading of the scriptures. The beginning of this, we start with a salutation. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Then we have the recipient of the letter. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. By the way, this is something that 
Paul does often, grace and peace, grace, mercy and peace and so on uh, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's, he loves to say that at the beginning of his letters. He does that quite often. Now we get into a new section here, the warning about false teaching, and it starts off with a warning against false teachers. And here's what we had. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the plan of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, excuse me, fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. By the way, this is one of those passages that you can turn to here in First Timothy when the, when the uh, conversation of homosexuality comes up. But what you'll find is that they will try to play games with it and say, oh, well, that word doesn't really mean that. It's talking about when you have one man who's forcing himself upon another man or something like that. Or they, they, they distort it and turn it into all sorts of other things. And so they try to say, well, this is not really talking about two people of the same sex who love one another and all that kind of thing. But that's why I always recommend if you if they, if they do that, if you point them to the verses like this and they do that, take them to Romans chapter one. Uh, Romans chapter one is a slam dunk. There's no there's no they can't play games with that. It's a slam dunk. And so if they try to do that, take them to uh, Romans one. All right. Let's look at some principles of those verses we just read. Uh, it is important to have spiritual authority overseeing the content of what is being taught within a local church. It's a very important concept. It's talked about in Scripture, not only in you know, the, uh, the principle of how this was done in an Old Testament context, but what is talked about within the local church context. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. It goes on from there. Therefore, be on the alert. <clears throat> be on the alert, right? So the idea is, look, that can happen. And what, what's scary about that passage is it's talking about from within. Not just attacks that come from without, but from within. You can have people who rise up. And I'll tell you where this is really uh, more of an issue this local church is a relatively small local church. I think if you're a regular, regular attendee, you can see that. I mean, we have a relatively small group this morning. Even if we packed all the seats, even if we had every seat filled in this sanctuary, we would still be relatively small. Now, the advantage of a small church is that the overseer of the church has a pretty good picture of what's going on in the local church. And so if something happened and somebody within the church 
were beginning to rise up and start to speak perverse things, as what's said here, things that are not according to sound doctrine, I would be I would be aware of that. I would be something it would be something that would come to my attention. I was I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. I was invited by a friend of mine at work to go down to Houston and speak on a particular topic uh, at a local church in the Houston area. And it was where his dad went to church. And I was talking about uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 by, you know, by grace through faith and the, that that's in that, which doesn't refer to faith being given to us. It was talking about our salvation as a free gift. And I went through very clearly. I explained it all very clearly, outlined it, the hutos that's there and how that cannot refer to faith. It doesn't refer to grace. It doesn't refer to any of it. It refers to salvation in that passage. It's clear if you understand the Greek, if you look at the other, other passages in the New Testament where it's used, it's always a verbal context. It's always speaking of a verbal concept, not uh, when you have it like that, it doesn't point back. There's no obvious antecedent. Well, I went down there to talk to them about that. And when I got there, I found that what I was doing is I was speaking to a local, a, a little small group thing. You know how these big churches, this was a gigantic church. This was a, I mean, this was a city that was called a church. I mean, it was massive. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of people that went to this church, right? It was massive. It was, I don't remember the name of the church, but it was massive. It was, it was honestly, when they told me, when they told me it was, it was like 6,000 people went to this church, right? So massive local church. And the people I was speaking to was a small group. Now, in that small group, as I'm sitting there and I'm teaching these things, all of a sudden, all, these people are asking questions and saying things which are so far off the mark, it was crazy, right? I'm talking about crazy stuff. But here's the thing. There were no doctrinal controls. This small group, these people were able to say whatever they wanted. They were, there was nobody in the room that was the authority. There was nobody that was going, no, 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 that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that, right? There was nobody who was standing ground and presenting sound doctrine. And so in that small group, the person, whoever it was that was the overseer in charge of that local church, had no idea what was happening. There's no way he was aware of these perverted when I say perverted, I'm talking about they were perverting Scripture, right? They were distorting Scripture and perverting it. Nobody was there to stop that from happening. I, I tried to. It wasn't my place, really. right? I'm coming in from Bastrop to go talk at a church in Houston. It's not my place, but I stepped in and I said, no, the Bible doesn't say that. And so it was an interesting environment. But see, that's, 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 you do, if, even if you're going to grow to a church that big, which I don't agree with, by the way, but if you're going to grow to a church that big, you have to have some sort of something in place to maintain doctrinal integrity. Otherwise, you're going to end up with that kind of thing. And it's going to, and there was, honestly, there was nobody there to, to stop it. It was just going to happen. And nobody was going to, it was just, it was almost this idea of, well, you have your opinion and you have your opinion and we all have our opinions. Well, what about what's true? What about the truth? And there was nobody to stop that from happening. You need to have spiritual authority. What is, what is it, what does this passage that we just read say? Wolves will come in. What happens when a wolf comes in and you've got a bunch of sheep? It's a bloody mess, isn't it? Right? It's a bloody mess. Just, you need somebody to protect the sheep. One of the ways this is accomplished is by teaching the whole counsel of God, which leaves no area of Scripture uncovered and thereby subject to potential distortion. Now, 
in Acts 2, uh, 20, 27, it says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now, that word that's there translated purpose in the New, in New American Standard is the idea of the whole counsel of God, the, whole, the breadth, the breadth of the whole counsel, the, the whole Bible, all of it. Now, we started this church in 2009. Did I start that very first day and we had a marathon session that lasted for uh, 14 days where I taught you from Genesis to Revelation on the first day? No, we didn't do that. The, the idea is you do it over time, right? You have to teach it over time. And what happens is everybody needs to learn. You, need, you don't need to be afraid of whatever doctrines there might be in any book of the Bible, anywhere in the scriptures. You need to be able to understand all of those things so that, for example, if somebody comes along and starts to contradict and says something that's different you're, you're in, in your soul, you're going to go, uh, no, <laughs> I don't think that's true. I'm pretty sure that's not right. Uh, so we need to be... We need to be aware that it's, it's critical. Uh, it's critical to understand all of the, the breadth of the, of the truth of God's word. It's also important to have a proper shepherd present, exercising oversight and proving to be an example to the flock. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Notice he has the idea of elders. Those are spiritually mature believers. That's what elders refers to. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, <clears throat> exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your char- charge but proving to be an example, to, uh, excuse me, proving to be examples to the flock. Now that's what it's all about, right? The, first of all, one of the things that's very important right there in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. It's his flock, right? It's his flock. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And it goes through all these things. Exercising oversight, that's very important. You have to be aware of what's going on. That's what oversight is. You've got to be aware of what's going on. I would tell you that pastor down at that church in Houston was not doing that. There was a failure of oversight at that local church. Now, he's got to answer to the Lord, not to me. So, you know, that's that's between him and the Lord. But he needs to be exercising oversight over his flock, not under compulsion. You're not forced to do it. It should be voluntarily done according to the will of God. Boy, we can focus on that for a while. You want to do that. Not for sordid gain. You're not in it for the money. If if you have somebody who claims to be a shepherd and they're in it for in it for the money, they're not. That's not a true shepherd. That's a hireling. It's not a true shepherd. But with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. And that's another important language. It's God's flock, and these are people that are allotted to your charge. Not lording it over them. It's not they press them under your thumb. I'm the big boss. I'm going to tell you exactly everything. It's not like that. But proving to be examples to the flock. That's how it's supposed to work. I hope nobody in this church feels like they're being lorded over. If you are, please let me know because that's not my goal. I don't want to lord it over any of you. Uh, I want to lead, but not put you under my thumb. That's not the goal. The overseer must be able to recognize things. This is important in the parentheses here. Even things which seem to be spiritual. Notice there's quotes around that. Which are non-edifying distractions from the faith. 1 Corinthians 10:23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. 
So it's one of the things I consider, and I know our deacons do as well, when we consider what it is that we're going to do, it's one of the things that's a big factor in whether or not we're going to do something. Will it edify? Is it spiritually profitable? Will it edify? If it doesn't, if the answer to that is no, then let's not do it. When we gather together, when we have our picnic, which, by the way, at this next deacons meeting, we probably need to talk about that. When we have our spring picnic and we all get together, yeah, we throw horseshoes around and we play some ladder golf and we do whatever else and those kinds of things. It's fun to get together and do that sort of thing. But ultimately, aren't what we're really doing is getting together and fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in Christ? I hope so. If that's not what we're doing, then we're not doing the right thing. The goal of the spring picnic is not uh, to become the best horseshoe thrower that you can become. Although I personally am striving for that. But, I'm, no, but, I, but seriously, it's not what it's really all about. The idea of it all is the fellowship. And by the way, as I mentioned before, it's also an opportunity to invite people from outside the church to come and be part of the picnic with us. Maybe people you know. Either it could be believers that you know who kind of have not, they've kind of bailed on church. They don't go to church anymore. Give them an opportunity to come and, and be, a, be among us and see, you know, see maybe if they're comfortable. You know, you never know. And unbelievers, of course, are welcome to come and participate in the picnic. But ultimately, what are we doing? It has to be edifying or else we're wasting our time. And that's the whole point. Uh, you have to be looking out for things which seem spiritual. Now, I'll give you a horrible example of this thing. This is what, this, you know, the quotes around spiritual the emergent church, I don't know how many people you're familiar with the emergent church, but that was a movement that's still kind of going on, but it was a real big movement in years past. And the whole idea was they were, they were rethinking the church experience. And so see, all of you came in today and you walked through that door and maybe you got some coffee and maybe you got some sort of refreshment and you had some time, you spent some time talking to some people, but then you came and you sat down because you knew there was going to be a Bible lesson today. We were going to be talking about things of the scripture. That was your expectation. But they reset all of that. That's not your expectation. See, what you would do is as you came in off the parking lot, maybe the first thing you would encounter is a maze. There would be a maze. You had to make your way through the maze. And it was it was part of the spiritual experience was navigating the maze. And then when you got through the maze on the other side, you would go up and there'd be a station of incense and you could go smell the incense. And then, no, I'm serious. This is what the emergent church was all about. And you would go from station to station to station to station. And it was all about experience. They called it experiencing God. That was what it was all about. Yes. Well, it, it's it's interesting. Sandra brought brought up the Catholic Church and their Stations of the Cross. It was it was brought the it was derived from that, very much derived from that. But anyway, if you study on the Emergence Church, you're going to sit there and scratch your head and go, "What? <laughs> That's what you're going to do." But my point is that these things, these people looked at these things and they said, that "This is these are spiritual things. The incense, the all these. It's experiencing God. It's all spiritual." As an overseer, you've got to look at all that and say, There's no, there is no edification in any of that. No, none. You're not being edified. You don't know more about God because you went and breathed some incense. and you, you might know more about incense, but you don't know more about God, right? Or Yeah, well, believe it or not, you said Buddha? Okay, so believe it or not, at some of the stations, they would have Buddha. Buddha would be there. That was part of it. Yeah, yeah part of it, yeah. Uh, we, the kind of the kind of the kind of incense we want to we want to worry about is that sweet smelling savor of our prayers going up to heaven. That's 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 the right kind of incense, right? 
Uh, the teaching of the overseer should emphasize a walk of faith, according, uh, excuse me, avoiding those who would attempt to deceive. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. See, that's a simple phrase, but the point of it all is I have to be emphasizing that as I'm teaching the things of the Word of God because that's what the Word of God emphasizes. It's a walk of faith. You don't always know. And that's why I love the language of the walk, right? The peripateo, right? The walk. It's one step at a time. It's because what we are given by God is we're given the information is, you know what? I'm standing here. My next step is right there. Often, that's all I know. I don't know about the step that's going to happen back there by Janice. I have no idea. What I know about is this step right here. And that's why the walk is such a beautiful description of it because we do one step at a time, don't we? And I, 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 by faith, by faith, I'm trusting that when I get down there, I'm going to be taking a step that God's going to show me what to do. But right now, I don't know what that step is. I don't know. So I'm taking this step, and it's a walk of faith. And that's what needs to be proclaimed because that's what the Scripture proclaims. Colossians, no, oh, excuse me, yeah, Colossians 2, 6 through 8. This should have been in our Colossians translation. Let me take it over here. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, live out your life abiding in him, having been firmly rooted and now being edified in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and excelling in thanksgiving. That's a sign, by the way, of a maturing believer is thankfulness. Look what it says in verse 8. Be careful that no one takes you captive through empty, deceitful philosophy in accordance with the tradition of men and the fundamental principles of the world rather than in accordance with Christ. And that's the thing that bothers me the most. The world world is going to H-E-double-L. What bothers me is this stuff coming into the churches. And it's been happening for years, folks. This is not the first time this has happened. Go back and listen to Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) He'll talk to you about back in his day about churches doing that sort of thing. But today, it seems like it's more about uh, popularity, celebrity, all these other kinds of things, right? The, the pastor's not a shepherd. He's a celebrity, right? It's not, about, it's not about glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about glorifying somebody in the church. It's not about proclaiming the truth of the scriptures. It's about being popular. Man, we want to have, we want to have, we want to be a popular church. We want people to come in. You know, all that. And they turn into social clubs, and it ends up being a, a dispensary, if that's the right word, of worldly truth, not godly truth. It's horrible what's happening in churches. That breaks my heart more uh, than what I see in the world. And um, I, I'm going to quote, I, I think it was J. Vernon McGee, and if it wasn't, uh, I apologize. I don't know who it was. It was somebody back in, back in the day who said, I'm way less concerned about what's happening in the, in the honky-tonks on Saturday night than what's happening in the churches on Sunday morning. And that's, that's real. That's the truth. While sound teaching will certainly impart knowledge of the Scriptures, the ultimate goal of all instruction should be love from a pure heart. I can't emphasize that enough. I hope that is something that you have learned from this ministry, from this pulpit, is that knowledge is great. Knowledge is part of the process. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, ultimately, we should be able to exhibit agape love from a pure heart. Psalm 
24, verses 3 through 5. Uh, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Notice that language, clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So what the, clean, what the idea of the clean hands and the pure heart is that not only is it in, it's, it's internal, that's the pure heart, but the clean hands is it's also in terms of what you do, your actions, right? Your hands are clean, your heart is pure, right? We have that. So the, the language of all of that is that uh, that's the goal. That's, what, that's where we want to be is ha- that pure heart. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 8, cha- uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have knowledge. We all have knowledge, right? That's what it says. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. See, this is the whole thing. Knowledge is not the end game, guys. Knowledge is just part of the process by which we come to know God. Knowledge is what we need in order to be able to have a clear understanding of the character of God, a clear understanding of his purposes, his Alpha 2 Omega plan, all these different things. We want to have the the knowledge, but what's the ultimate goal? To be able to function in his love. And if I, were to, if I right now were to put up on the screen, and I thought about it, I thought about it. If I were to put up on the screen a whole crowd of people marching with their signs that say trans is the new thing or whatever else, kind of all these arguments with all the LGBTQIA plus whatever it is, I've run out of, run out of letters for it but the alphabet people if you if i had a a picture of them marching with their signs probably you wouldn't respond in love but ultimately that's where we need to get you see because we need to understand that as much as we don't approve of what they're doing what they're purporting what they're selling to the public as much as we do not approve of that and we should not approve of that we should still be able to look at them the same way that Jesus looks at them because when he was hanging on the cross, he died for their sins. Amen? And so we should be able to look at it the same way. And that's not easy. It's not easy. It takes maturity to be able to get to that place. And that's why Paul makes this statement here. That's why he's talking about love, agape love, as opposed to knowledge. Knowledge is important. Paul never says that knowledge is not important. But you've got to be careful. Knowledge can make you arrogant. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. <laughs> Just make a noise. <laughs> That's all I'm doing. I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. And I, if I have all faith. That seems like a good thing, doesn't it? If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. I talk about it all the time. This idea of, this idea of functioning in love is so important. And I call it, my, my term for it is the operational sphere of love. And what I mean by that is your thoughts are shaped by the love of God. Your speech is tempered by the love of God. Your actions are guided by the love of God. 
So whatever you're doing, it is from a, it is from a position of love. That's what we want to do. I give simple example. You discipline a child. You discipline a child out of anger, or do you discipline a child in love? It has to be done in love. Do you come alongside and give a rebuke to a fellow believer in arrogance, superiority? I know the scriptures, and you clearly don't. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing this, right? You know, that whole kind of an idea. If you come at it from a position of arrogance like that, that's not going to accomplish anything. But if you come alongside in love, that's profitable. That makes a difference. That's going to, that's going to be. So everything should be shaped by love. And now love does not mean what the world says it means. Love does not mean that if you love somebody, you have to think everything they do is okay. I certainly hope none of you thinks that everything I do is okay because God doesn't think that way. Right? God doesn't approve of everything I do. I can promise you my mother has not approved of everything I have done. <laughs> I can promise you that. But here's the point. The point of it all is there's a kind of love which we've studied from the scriptures, agape love, the kind of love that we can have for others that wants them to be more mature, wants them to be successful spiritually, wants them to move forward in their own Christian walk. Or if it's an unbeliever, we want them to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But we don't approve of everything they do. I don't know where, I don't know how that concept got thrown in there. Since, since when? I mean, I mean, we all go back. I mean, if you think about it, part of it, part of it comes from this destroying the family. Because when the fam, within the family context, every child knew that their parent loved them even though they didn't approve of everything they did. My, my dad loved me when, we hit it, when he hit me with his belt, right? Because I was being a jerk. And he was straightening me out. He loved me. He didn't want me to, he didn't want me to turn into some disastrous adult. He wanted me to grow up and be a useful member of society. So when he spanked me with his belt, it was, it was done out of love most of the time, <laughs> most of the time. But anyway, the point is that, that whole, when you break up the family, now you lose that whole concept. People, people don't understand that anymore. Believers in the church function under grace, not law. So systems of legalism are a distraction from the principles of the faith. Romans 6.14, everybody knows this verse. Um, <clears throat> my links are not working right. Uh, let me take it to Romans here, Romans 6.14. For sin shall not have mastery over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We are blessed that we don't function under the law. Think about it. Think about all the requirements of the law. Think about all the things that you didn't do today that you would have had to have done in order to participate in worship service as a function of the law. You didn't have to do any of that. Uh, you came to church today, and the one thing that you needed to do in order to really be blessed by the service is you needed to be here in fellowship, right? You needed to be here walking in the light as he is in the light, not in carnality. I see a couple of you that might still... No, I'm kidding. Uh, so, But seriously... The, the idea is we don't, we don't have to deal with all of that. It's very important that we're under, we're under grace, right? We function under grace and not under law. So what does that mean? Well, I, don't, I, I don't need to impose my own system of legalism upon you, do I? I don't need to, write, I don't need to have a whole checklist of things that if, as, long as, you're all, as long as you're all meeting all my checks that I have on my little checklist here, then everything's fine, right? That's not, that's not okay. 
It's not all right to do that sort of thing, and some, but churches do. Churches do that sort of thing. Uh, we function in a system of grace, and that is so important. I mean, Dave, I know that's uh, something you and I talk about all the time. I mean, grace is an amazing thing, isn't it? It's just incredible. When you really begin to understand grace, it changes everything. It really does, because now it's not, we're not checking boxes anymore. We're functioning in grace, and that has to do with our relationship with God and with other people. Legalism has the appearance of being knowledge, but is actually a form of ignorance because what you're doing is you're ignorant of you're ignorant of what God has for us. You're ignorant of his plan. You're developing your own system instead of functioning according to his system, right? You have you you have your own standard that you're trying to impose rather than God's standard. However, the law should be taught to show us that we fall short of God's righteousness. That's a very important concept. Let's see if this link works. So far they're not working. No, it's not. None of my links are working. That's a bummer. But now, independent of the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, this being attested to by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we we need to understand the law needs to be taught. We're not under the law, but can we benefit from learning about that? Yes, we can. Absolutely. All of us can. Because no one, no one other than Christ himself was able to meet the requirements of the law. Everybody fell short. Everyone. Yes. In terms of... Yes. Paul stated it so clearly and then he said, look, he, he started naming them off, didn't he? All the things he could say. Like, I have all these reasons I could boast to you. Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. He, he goes through this whole list of things. And I think he didn't even name them all, right? There were more things he could have named about things he could have boasted, boasted about in terms of his own personal accomplishments, right? But all of that to him was... Rubbish, and the word for rubbish is even more strong than rubbish, right? Manure, basically. All of that is manure, and uh, compared to knowing Christ Jesus, right? That was the whole thing. And so I think Paul did express it very well in terms of that humility, recognizing that, you know, it's it's all about grace. It's all about what God has done, right? It's not about it's not about me in any way. I, I agree with you 100% on that. He did a great job of expressing that. The law has never been able to save anyone, but its very purpose is to be a tutor, which leads people to Christ. Galatians 3 expresses this very well. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all, to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And it goes on from there. Very important concept. By the way, I wanted to back up. It says here in verse 21, the law then contrary to the promises of God. This is talking about, you know, the, uh, the conditional covenant, the Mosaic law. Is it contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. 
You can reread that sentence. For if any mechanism other than faith in Jesus Christ had been able to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on those mechanisms. And God would not have sent his son to the cross to die. That, that phrase right there, if a law, when it says a law, don't think about necessarily the, the Mosaic law specifically. If anything, if any system or structure had been put in place that was able to impart life, then that's where righteousness would be based is in whatever that system is. It's not possible, right? The fact of the matter is no one can be saved through those systems. It has to be through faith in Jesus Christ, as it says right here in the very next verse. All sin is exceedingly sinful so that whatever particular form your personal sins may take, they can only be addressed through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So you can't come to me and say, as some people will try to do, uh, but I never murdered anybody. I never, and whatever, you just get, whatever your favorite list might be, right? I never did this. I never stole a car. I never robbed a bank. I never go through whatever your favorite list is. Okay, that's great. Did you ever lie? <laughs> Have you ever lied? Did you ever gossip about someone? Did you ever, you know, let's talk about it because all sin is exceedingly sinful. All of it is exceedingly sinful. That's why, really, when you think about it, it's, it's, it's really pretty straightforward. If you want to talk to a child, for example, about their need for a Savior, just ask them a few questions like that. Have you ever, have you ever lied about something? Did you ever... Did you, ever hit your, did you ever hit your brother over here out of anger? Did you ever, you know, you can talk to a kid. The kids understand sin. They may not call it sin. That may not be the term they use for it, but they understand it. They know that they do it. And so you can talk to them about the need for a Savior. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never... By the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, and by the way, this is speaking in particular to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where... They would come together and they would have the, the high priest would offer up a sacrifice for himself and for the people. And then after that sacrifice was offered up, he would enter into the Holy of Holies one time on that day, the Day of Atonement, into the Holy of Holies. But it was always a reminder of the people of their sins and their need, by the way, for repentance. It wasn't just about making sacrifices, killing the animals. It was a reminder of their need for repentance and he would go into the Holy of Holies and, and all of that would take place on the Day of Atonement. And those sacrifices would happen every single year. They would come back to the Day of Atonement and they would do it again. And it was a reminder to the people of their sins every single year. Well, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is if those were able to actually cleanse you of anything, if it was they were able to take your sins away, then after you did it one year, then, okay, we don't need to do it again because it's all finished now, right? It's all done. Maybe we'll do it for the maybe we'll do it for the people that were born during the last year or something, right? But but you wouldn't have to do it for people over and over again. But the point is, those sacrifices were never able to really take the sins away. Down in verses 11 through 14, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down 
at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one, uh, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You see, that's the offering that mattered, and that's the offering that all of those other sacrifices were pointing to. The fact of the matter is those sacrifices were not uh, efficacious. Those sacrifices were typological. They were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, which would be Christ himself. You all know this, but it's important to be reminded of these things. It's important to be reminded of these things. Sin, we need to understand the the sinfulness of sin. I, I I don't like the idea of categories of sin, and you'll see that, right? The Catholic Church does that, right? They have the... What is it? it was the seven deadly sins, and they have all these different categories of the different. All sin is exceedingly sinful. If you violate the law in one aspect, you violated the whole thing. All sin is exceedingly sinful. I promised you in a local church context, okay, let's talk about this. This is going to be a little bit uncomfortable. We'll talk about it. So if we had some kind of a murder that took place in our local church, that would be pretty disruptive, wouldn't it? That would be something that would get all of our attention, and we'd all probably be pretty shaken by it. But let me tell you this, gossip can destroy a local church way quicker than something like that. It can create schisms, all kinds of things can take place in a local church. Sin is destructive, sin is sinful. Let's not try to make our own personal sins seem lighter or not as bad as others. (laughs) That's relative righteousness and we don't want to get into that. Paul and the other apostles were entrusted with the gospel message, not, by the way, uh, He's not the only one who talked about that, but all of them were. Galatians chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because, sorry, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in, those sneaky guys, sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, Those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. It goes on from there. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised and so on. Well, the point is what Paul is saying here is we didn't want the gospel to be sullied. We didn't want it to be distorted, messed up, right? The gospel needed to be pure. These guys were sneaking in and were trying to say, no, you got to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. And part of it was the circumcision. The idea is unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. That's what they were saying is unless, you know, unless the men were circumcised, they couldn't be saved. Well, that's not the gospel, is it? Because we know what the circumcision, the physical circumcision is really all about. And then Paul goes on later to talk about the, the circumcision that matters is the circumcision of the heart, not any other circumcision. But it's very important to understand you don't want it to be sullied up. You don't want, to, you don't want it to be messed up. 
uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, notice that language, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Right? That's the whole thing. The gospel was being spoken to please God, not men. That message was taught to faithful men who entrusted this to others also. Right? These Paul and the other apostles were entrusted with the gospel, and they passed it down. 2 Timothy 2.2, these things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Four generations, Paul, Timothy, the faithful men and the others also. Four spiritual generations in that verse. And that's how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be passed down. And we have failed that, by the way. In my lifetime, I've seen a failure in that regard. Today, all believers serve as ambassadors for Christ and should be prepared to share the gospel at any time. In other words, we've all been entrusted with the gospel. All of us. All of us. We're all ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, the very important language, by the way, in that whole passage, if you have to pay attention to these things, we have we, us, we, us, we, us. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you. And that's where you get that for the first time. So now we're talking to people that are outside of the, the we and the us, right? We, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And we beg you. Now we're talking to somebody outside of that group on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are ambassadors. We need to be prepared to share the gospel at any time. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And that should have been over here in my First Peter translation. Let me put it over here and we'll try again. I don't know why my links are broken. But set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being prepared in regard to an answer for anyone who asks you for an explanation concerning the confident expectation that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. And so that was the translation we had in, uh, in our study of 1 Peter. All right. God's grace and mercy towards Paul. We will, come to the, we will come back to this next time, verses 12 through 17. We will pick that back up next time. We're going to go ahead and take a look at our scripture of the week. So by getting started on time, we can actually finish a little earlier, and all of you can... Make it to the restaurant in time. Beat the Baptist to the restaurant. That's exactly right. That's the goal, right? You can get there and beat the Baptist to the restaurant. All right, Ezra 9, 8. We're going to read this all together, and then I have some things to say about it. This, was, this by the way, was just in our Bible reading just recently. Um, Ezra 9, 8. Let's all read this together. But now... 
For a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. All right, now this was a message for the people of Israel. This was regarding the people of Israel. But notice what Ezra is saying here. Now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant, to give us a peg at his holy place. I feel like the reason I wanted this to be our scripture of the week is because I feel like this is where we are today. It's not exactly the same because Israel had gone under their captivities, right? This is the when we get to Ezra, it's all about we're starting to come back from the captivities, from the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities. Ezra's talking about that sort of thing. There's, an, a, rem, there's a remnant. They're starting to rebuild the, the holy place. They're starting to rebuild the, the temple so they can worship in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the wall. There's other things that are happening in the process of all of this. But I want you to put this in today's context. I want, we want to make application to the world we live in today. I believe this is pertinent, but now for a brief moment, moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant, right? We, there's a remnant today that exists. There's a remnant of believers today that exists in this dark, dark world. We've been given grace, right? God has given us grace He's for this brief moment. I don't know how long it's going to last. Neither do you. None of us knows how long it's going to last. But for a brief moment, grace has been given from the Lord our God. It's been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant. Now, the idea is there's there's a remnant today. We're still functioning. We still have the freedom to function as a remnant of believers in the world we live in today. To give us a peg in his holy place. We're not really talking about a temple anymore, are we? We're talking about, though, the... I believe the pertinent thing for today is we still have today the ability to do what we're doing right now. We still have the ability ability to gather together like this in local churches to speak the things of God, to proclaim truth. We still have that God's grace. We can't forget that it's God's grace. You think grace is only talked about in the New Testament? It's talked about in the Old Testament. Grace has been shown to us to be able to do what we're doing right now. The world in which we live, believe me, the world forces of darkness would love to be able to stop us from doing this they would love to be able to stop us from being able to gather right here right now and do what we're doing to have the fellowship that we have the freedom that we have to proclaim christ to this lost and dying world they would love to stop us from being able to do that but god has preserved that for us for a brief moment we don't know how long he's preserved that for us he's shown us grace that our god may enlighten our eyes Enlighten our eyes. This is a time for us to become more aware of the truth, to become more aware of what he's doing, right? This is an opportunity. He's granted us this blessing. Don't waste it because what's going to happen in the future? I don't know what it is. This word bondage at the end of this, I'm going to replace that word for today. I'm going to replace that with persecution. It's, we have, we are, we are facing persecution today, but are we facing the kind of persecution that we could face? No, we are not. And we are not facing the kind of persecution that the church has faced in the past. So what I'm telling you, what I want you to get out of this verse, when I read this verse, it reminded me, you know what? God, has, God is sparing us right now. Because as I said last hour, I, 
if it were up to me, I would just destroy the whole lot of us, right? I mean, this, this world, with all that's going on in this world, it's disgusting, it's perverted, it's sick, it's twisted. I don't even know how people have come to believe what they've come to believe. It's really hard to fathom what people think is okay today. I mean, sometimes I just ask people that. I say, so you're okay with this? Really? You know, I often wonder, how did you get to this place where you are okay with this? And I think one thing that's interesting that, again, we were talking about love earlier, right? We were talking about functioning in love and how important it is. And, I, and I'm not going to change my opinion on that. But one of the things, some people look to Jesus when he was on the cross. And when Jesus was on the cross and they were doing what they were doing, he, he spoke and he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Right? They didn't realize what they were doing. I think we have a lot of people today who actually do know what they're doing. And they're doing it on purpose. You see what I'm saying? Now, they don't realize, they don't realize it relative to God's truth. You see what I'm saying? Of course, that's, that is what Jesus was talking about. But I, I, don't, I, think, there's, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of people out there that are, that are lemmings that are just following along in the flow. But I think there's also a lot of people out there that are evil to the core. And they, what they need, see, here's where we function in love. What they need is to know Jesus as their Savior. What they need is a transformation in their, in their whole lives because of a relationship with God. Because where they're coming from, they're doing Satan's bidding, are they not? I mean, that's what I see. I see people that are doing Satan's bidding, and they're doing it knowingly. Some of them even proclaim. Like I told, I told you, the one that blew me away, at least it was honest, the one that blew me away was that lady that was at the, the rally when it came to abortion, right? That whole thing that came up with, uh, with Roe v. Wade and all that. And that, there was this one lady, and she was up there screaming, and she said, we're here to kill the babies. At least she was honest. At least she was honest about it. You know, but I mean, they talk about evil. She had no problem, by the way, with killing the babies. She had no problem whatsoever with killing the babies. That's just evil. So we need, we need to have our eyes enlightened during this time. We need to realize we have an opportunity right now to be flourishing in our faith. Take advantage of it. That's kind of what Ezra is talking about. We have, we've been given grace, a brief moment. We've been in grace. Our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our persecution, right? That we a little reviving. We can, Maybe we can have something of a revival within the church. We want to see a revival even outside the church, don't we? We want to see the gospel message reach others. But does the church need reviving? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ezra is talking about, Ezra is talking about Israel and, their, and the faith of the people of Israel and how they needed reviving. Yeah, they did for sure. But that's, I mean, to me, this reads for today. I, when I read this, I'll read it again. When I read this, I, I can read it for today, right now. For now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escape room and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. I feel like that's where we are right now. That's what's happening today is we've been given a little bit of grace. We've been given an, an extension of his mercy and his loving kindness. And we need, to, we need to not be arrogant about that. We need to realize, wow, this is unbelievable because God... God rightly so should be crushing every one of us right now. I mean, this is we, we deserve we deserve his wrath in this country and he's giving us grace. Let's take advantage of it. Let's be aware of how lucky we are, how blessed we are is probably a better word. Not lucky, we're blessed. He's blessing us right now with this reprieve is a good way to say it. We've been given a reprieve and we should be aware of the importance of that. All right, we'll come back next time.
And we will look at the next section in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, God's grace and mercy toward Paul, and move on from there. But let's go ahead and close in prayer, and then we will finish with our final hymn. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with this opportunity to gather the like-mindedness, the fellowship that we have, the blessing of being part of the body of Christ, to be in your family, adopted as your children. Father, we have so many blessings, we can't even begin to count them all. And yet all of that is given to us by grace as a function of faith. It's all because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. We don't deserve any of it, not a lick of it. But yet you've given us so many spiritual blessings. You've poured out these things upon us. You allowed us to gather here today. You have, for a brief moment, given us that grace, shown us that grace. We have an opportunity to gather as a group of believers. We have the freedoms to proclaim the truth of your word. We have the opportunity to share the gospel message with people around us. Father, we are blessed. And we need to realize we don't know how long that's going to last, this reprieve this period of grace we don't know how long it's going to last but times of persecution are, be, are going to become more severe it's we've had, we have evidence of it that it's going to become more severe and we don't know what your plan is in terms of your timeline we don't know when the trumpet's going to sound when you're going to send your son to gather together the body of christ we don't know but at the same time we rec- we need to recognize what we have right now, the opportunity we have to grow in the faith, the opportunity we have to become stronger spiritually day by day. And we need to be, we need to be taking full advantage of that and not be slacking off and, and just kind of thinking this is how it's always going to be. This is a period of grace right now that we've been given because the things that are happening in the, in the world around us, the, the sins of this country, the sins of the people, our own sins. Father, we don't understand why you're your wrath has not come down upon us, but thank you for the grace and help us to be recognizing exactly how fortunate we are to be in this period of time and th- be thankful for the freedoms that we do have and to continue to grow in the faith and share the gospel with others. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. We are going to... Play some more robot music.